Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of White Label American. to you guys especially with my little boss at home but not complaining but i need to get more people on the team to make sure the content or uh, the quality of the content it's um continues to be as awesome and better than what i'm putting out so the more you support the better it gets but if you can't join us on patreon uh on patreon that's fine you can also support by liking sharing and subscribing and um, especially giving us a positive review on iTunes and that five stars. We need the five stars on every podcast platforms, but especially iTunes because of the algorithm. We can't compete with them big celebrities out there. We don't have the money. So that's the only way we can keep climbing up there. So keep the five stars and positive reviews coming in. So with that being said, and uh, yes, we also have t-shirts at vetclothing.com. Just um, go to the sponsors um on um tab you'll see uh white label american podcast t-shirts and yeah get yourself a t-shirt of your favorite color so with that being said i introduce today's guest he's an author a sailor and he says sometimes journalist but i say he's an all-time journalist but he, he refers to himself as sometimes a journalist so um was april last year i was on twitter and I'm still getting used to Twitter because I joined late 2018. And I saw, I came across this article on, on writers. Um, and it was a story uh, early in the pandemic of um, how the pandemic was hitting the homeless population in New York City, where I live. And I was like, oh, um, one of the, the people who, were, who was affected and one of the homeless people in the story happened to be fellow Nigerian born. And the person who was writing the story said he had ties to the country. And I was like, wait a minute, that name doesn't sound Nigerian, but could it be someone like me with a name that, you know, when people see my names, they're like, oh, but you, you, you're not from Africa or you're not Nigerian. I'm, you don't have a name. And they call me by Yoruba, they, ex, they bring up a Yoruba name. So I had to look him up and I was like, oh, I would like to have this person on my podcast and, you know, find out who he is and hear his story and you know i kept i just wrote it down and said maybe one day i'll reach out one day i'll reach out and then one day i realized that wait he has an instagram maybe i should send a message and you know and one thing led to another and here he is in the studio with me today we're both vaccinated so we can be in the studio so i'm so happy to have maurice taman in the studio with me today and it's so inspiring and i'm happy and you know i'm overjoyed so thank you for joining us today oh it's great to be here so um 
let's dive in and let's begin from the very beginning. Mm. So where was uh, Maurice's place of birth and what was your childhood like? Uh, I was born in London um, and I spent the first few years uh, in in London. Um, of course, that means that I'm an Arsenal supporter and I, you know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but oh, I, ca- no, I come man. by it honestly, of course. Um <laughs> I talk uh, a lot of trash about Arsenal. Well, it's easy this year. <laughs> it hasn't always been easy, has it? <laughs> um, so um, both my parents uh, were born in Africa. Uh, my father was born in Sudan. Um, his, my grandmother was born in Alexandria in Egypt. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, they're, they're North African Arab Jews. So, oh. you know... They, they're true Africans. Yeah. My mother, on the other hand, was, is colonial English. Wow. Uh, she was born in, in, they were living in, in Kenya at the time and in a place called Karen, which is just outside, was just outside Nairobi. Now it's a suburb of Nairobi. Um, but she would, they were on holiday and she was born in um, Cape Town, I think. Uh, anyway, she was born in South Africa. Uh, her sister was born in, in Dar es Salaam, actually. Um, anyway, in the early 60s, they were both in London, coincidentally. He's a short, swarthy, North African fellow. My mother is a crazy, tanned, white English woman, and they had a torrid affair, and I came out much to the chagrin of both families, as it turns <laughs> out. <laughs> um, and then um, in the early 70s, um, when Gowan was the president yeah. of, in Nigeria, we moved to Kano in the north, wow. where my father, um, we believe, ran a, a factory there where they made lorries and trailers. Uh, yeah, there, there used to be yeah, like vehicle factories in yeah. northern Nigeria at right. that point in time. Yeah. And, and th- those were the, the real formative years for me, um, you know, living on Kangao Road in Kano, just down the road from the, the racetrack and, mm-hmm. and the giant peanut pyramids that used yeah. to build up, which was, you know, for a pre-10-year-old boy, there was nothing more fun than to climb those peanut <laughs> pyramids <laughs> and get chased off by the dogs and the guards <laughs> and such. Um, and then um, in the late 70s, we moved back to the UK. Uh, briefly, we lived in Cambridge, just outside Cambridge for a while. And then ultimately, in 1979, my father's dream came true to move to the States. And uh, in August of 1979, mm-hmm. we moved to the New York area. Wow. So, um, and then I, you know, went to high school and you know, okay. went downhill from there. So, you started in London, Cano. Oh, by the way, you're the second guest on this podcast who was born... Um, outside of Nigeria, but stayed, spent some time in Kano. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's also in New York here. Um, Brian uh, Long-Awe was born in Ghana mm-hmm. and schooled in Kano. Is primary, that right? Yeah. yeah. Primary school in Kano. Yeah, I went to primary school. There were two There was two primary schools in Kano when I was there. There was the one for the expats and there was one for the locals and they were right next to one another. I forget the name of the street. Um but they were right but every friday afternoon because school would end at noon because yeah. it was so hot and there was no air conditioning so but friday afternoon 
um, we would have a football match. Um, oh. And, you know, and there was no grass or anything, but, <laughs> yes, you know, you know. <laughs> um, but we would play. And, of course, all the expats would show up in their football boots and their kits and their socks and their shin guards. And they would all look very pretty. And then the kids, players from the school next door, which was for the locals, would come over and we would lose 15 nil every week. <laughs> and it was then I realized that the great untapped reservoir of footballers from Africa was just ready to be exploited. And yeah. I mean, I think you saw since then, you know, some great footballers come from West Africa in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, you just brought me up a video that was. Um, it was that popped up online yesterday. It was just uh, I was making fun of the five aside soccer, and someone posted it in our dad's group because I, I help run the dad's group that will play every Friday, and um, it it mentioned. Uh, so he used the, the person made video. I think it was a, a black African in mm -hmm. in the UK mm -hmm. who made video, and he has the uh, like the five people who you see at the five aside. The first guys. Guy coming from the construction, mm -hmm. uh, he walks in construction, always smokes, but he, he never gets tired when he's on the field. <laughs> he never gets tired. <laughs> and then it's, it's, I think the fourth person was the guy who has all the kids dressed to the nines. Every club he has their outfits from head to toe. Doesn't have a single skill. He has no skill. I was like, yeah, I remember those days back. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, I used to coach when my kids were younger. Um, I had a son who was a, played a lot of football, and so I coached him. And it would there was always an inverse relationship between the quality of the kid and the quality of the player. Yeah. Um, you know, if you had a parent who was hovering all the time and buying the best equipment for their child and sending them off to camps all the time, invariably the, this was a child who was often lacking. Um, and, and And I don't mean that to put the kids down it's just that um you know s football is a sport i think that you learn the most by playing with kids your own age and, and getting knocked down and getting up and playing and playing mm -hmm. and playing and you know sometimes i think people can wish for their children um and they, that wish often manifests itself in buying things that they don't necessarily need true you know and I always felt a soft spot. I always had a soft spot for those kids because I knew that their 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 expectations were not necessarily the same as their parents' expectations. Yeah. And they were coming out and playing and practicing uh, for their parents as much as they were doing for themselves. I, I think I once heard <laughs> someone say something along the lines of um, lots of kids in sports are being made to fulfill the dreams their parents never couldn't couldn't fulfill <laughs> so it's like the parents push them to a certain limit that you know it's it's not necessarily the kid's dream whereas the parents trying to relieve that dream that they could never um, achieve yeah i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah because uh, my, my, uh, my, my daughter loves kicking the ball at home she sees me watching the game my mom watches the game sometimes and so that oh, maybe um, a good way for her to start socializing, she, she's going to be three in August, um, was to get her signed up for one of the kids' soccer in the park. And we got out there, and she looked from the stroller and said, I want to go home. 
<laughs> she never was coming out. I said, okay, but can we watch them? She said, nope. Yeah. So for the first three weeks, she said, nope. I, I didn't force her, but I just brought her there. We sometimes we watch. She would just sit down in the stroller, eat, drink. But when we get home, she's kicking the ball all the time. Mm-hmm. But when we get to the park, she sees other kids. And she knows one or two of them from the playground. And she's like, hi. I'm not coming out to play with you. Mm. And then yesterday she comes out and she's just like, I want to kick you. will stop scoring. I was like, oh, I, I didn't think she was going to do that. But she's like, oh, I'm, I'm ready now. I just, I'm like, okay, well. And one of the parents with me, uh, who's actually from the Caribbean, she, she was like, you know, if they want to, they will. If they don't, you know, you don't have to force them because the moment you start, how old is She's not even up to three. Well, I'm like, mm-hmm. like, you must go play. You must, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, that's me trying to say, I, I wanted to be on the team. I I wanted to. I'm like, nah. You just if you don't like it, fine. You go to the other spots, or you go find your hobby somewhere else. You know, do your own thing. So, <laughs> so that's beautiful. Yeah. So with that being said, from your childhood, um, if I were to ask, you know, for your favorite childhood memory, hmm. would that come from Kano or would that come from somewhere else? Uh. Almost certainly from Kanu, I think. Um, I mean, I lived a little Tom Sawyerish life while I was there. It was really for a child. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, compared to what life was like in dreary, cold London. Yeah. Um, it was like heaven. Um, you know, we had a horse, we had a monkey, we had three parrots, we had a swimming pool. You know, I would jump on the horse anytime I wanted to and go down to the racetrack and race around the, the, the track that wasn't too far from the house. Yeah. You know, my parents... Oh, yeah, there has to be a race. Yeah, there was a race. Yeah, I checked on Google. It's still there. It's still there? It's still there. Wow. I mean, whether they use it for racing, I don't know, but the, you can yeah, see I, the track. I, I, I just recall seeing that in the news, yeah. papers. Yeah. And, and I think because both my parents were Africans, or mm-hmm. at least born in Africa... They didn't have they didn't have the protective instincts that some of the Europeans oh. uh, expats that were there. So I was given license to do whatever I wanted, and I just could go. And of course, school ended at noon, yeah. so I was free for most of the day to go and do whatever I wanted. And it was, uh, you know, it was a wonderful place. And you know, and my mum, my mum was always mixing around town she was very popular around the city and she was well known and uh because of that you know i could go safely and do anything i wanted of course it was a different time then i mm-hmm. i suppose but uh uh i loved conan um it was a magical place for me so uh while you were there and, you know mixing around did you did you pick hausa um I could speak rudimentary Hausa when I was there. I have a funny story about that, actually. Now, of course, practicing Hausa after you've left is nearly impossible, right? And, of course, I had many other things on my mind once I became a teenager than maintaining my Hausa. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so I was, uh, I caught a cab from downtown. This is probably three years ago, maybe longer. Uh, I, and I needed to get to work. I think I had injured my ankle running or something, and so I couldn't take the subway. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I took a cab from downtown up to Midtown. And I get in the cab, and I tell the cabbie where I'm going. And for whatever reason, I think he look, I look like somebody who could be taken for a ride. 
and he's taking me all over Kingdom Come, and I'm like, where, where the fuck are you going, dude? And he goes, I'm taking you. I said, no, 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 you're not taking me. <laughs> and I could tell he had the ritual scars on his face. Right? Ah, yeah. Right? And so I knew where he was from. And so I cursed him out in Hausa because I could still remember how to curse in Hausa. <laughs> and he starts laughing and laughing and laughing. And I said, and he said, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. And he pulls over the car on the side of the road and he gets on the phone and he dials a number and he says, holds up the phone and he says, this is my wife. Tell her what you just told me. So I have to curse her out as well. <laughs> So anyway, at that point, we drive straight to the office, right? And we get out and, um, you know, I don't know what the bill was. I can't remember now, but I've had a great time at that point. You know, uh -huh, he and yeah. I have really had a lovely, you know, 15 <laughs> minutes together in the misery of, of midtown uh. traffic. And I go to pay him. He goes, no, 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 this one's on me. This has been the best ride I've had in years. <laughs> so, oh, so my house had got me a free cab ride once. <laughs> Uh, man, I I I can't remember any Hausa because uh, I was born in Jos and mm -hmm. I, I used to speak Hausa as a kid. But uh, fortunately, family was more about English, so mm -hmm. it got beat out of me. But uh, when we moved to Benin City, mm -hmm. I um I was there was a few people who speak Hausa around me, but yeah, nobody I wasn't around them. Right. So right. with time, it just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I lost the ability to. And by the time I moved to Ibadan, where I was around a whole lot of Hausa people, yeah, it, it just seemed like I was always reaching, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So other than Nagode, it's just, <laughs> there's nothing there. Yeah. Or, or was that the other one, Rankadidi? Or, or, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So that's how I lost my house. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I still once once you can connect with some taxi drivers, yeah, you can get some. Yeah, you can get a free ride and some great yeah, stories. Yeah, he was, you know, it wasn't a small <laughs> bill, I might add. Oh, you, you know, no, it was a so it was a he, nice size bill by the time we got there. <laughs> well, that's I guess the ride around was worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, so. Um, how long did you spend in London before return, uh, before moving to the United States? So we came back, um, uh, and, and uh, two, two and a half years, we were in England. We actually moved up to Cambridge, just outside Cambridge. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, my father had a peculiar habit of choosing places where we could not have fitted in, fit in any less. Um, so uh, we lived in a little village called Linton. And then another small, even smaller village called Castle Camps. Um, and then in night, so in 1979, two, two and a half years later, um, we moved to, to a small town up in northern New Jersey called Sparta. Um, very pretty place. Doesn't look like most of New Jersey, I must say. But when, when you say um, your father chose places that he couldn't fit in, well, how does that work then? Well, I don't, you know, you I, I don't know. My father, you know, I don't know about what your background is uh, uh, in terms of your immigration uh, um, history. But for me, uh, you know, I've been an immigrant now in two countries, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I count England as an immigrant country coming back from Nigeria to England. And we moved to this very... Um, 
you know, it was a very same place. All the students looked the same. All the students thought the same. Mm. I shouldn't say all. That's unfair. But there was a there was a monolithic ne- uh, um, um, tendency, and you know, I was very tanned. <laughs> um, I was very dark haired. I had black, almost you know, that bluish hair, very dark, mm-hmm. and I was Jewish. And all those things, and at that point, I hadn't given up my faith and become an atheist. But um, you know, we were practicing, and and I, you know, at that point, I thought I was the only. We were the only Jews in town, and it was difficult. Um, you know, once they found out that I was not Christian, um, I struggled sometimes to even make it home. That wow. there would be boys, uh, there was a, a couple of kids in particular who would be waiting at me for me at a certain bridge, and oftentimes it would result in fights. Oh, and I really struggled being, you know, different. But my father was an assimilist; he was a big believer, and of course, that generation of immigrants from all over the world, mm-hmm. they were they wanted to be English, they wanted to be American, they yeah. wanted to be German, they wanted to be French, and they would. You know, my father's first tongue is Arabic, and he never taught me Arabic as a matter of principle. He could speak French, English, uh, Italian, Arabic, you know, but he insisted we speak English Mm. because, you know, I think that he wanted to belong. And my experience was I don't want to belong. If this is the way you treat people who are different from you, I have no interest in belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's funny how little things affect you, but that for me, you know, I, I always started to feel I want to be, I don't want to belong if belonging requires me treating other people this way. And so I've always had this kind of outside view of the universe. I'm happy to step inside your world, um, and enjoy your world and appreciate your culture, but I don't feel I belong anywhere. And as a result of that, I can appreciate you. I can appreciate the good in you and what you have to offer, but I don't belong to any particular group as a result of that. And, you know, I think it's been borne out since I was a kid that, you know, we can be a very unkind species to one another. And we see that all over the world every day. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think that's something that's common that across you know various immigrant communities and even before i um came over to the state growing in nigeria it's part of why i lost the ability to speak hausa because as a kid i remember being chastised for i i was able to grasp um hausa and yoruba before the ages of five i was speaking hausa and yoruba all in just because we had um yoruba kids in my um in my compound and um, Hausa kids and kids from other tribes too, but the Yoruba and Hausa were the closest to me, and somehow I just started picking up their language. But the complaint was that my English was not good enough, mm-hmm. and that was why I was getting beatings and I was getting chastised, and I was I was always hearing family complaints. And somewhere, somehow, I never had anybody mention that our language, our mother tongue, which is Ijo. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever mentioned that. Right. And then I'm a teenager. One of my grand aunts visits from the village one day and she's 
speaking she always speaks in Ijo. And she's like, How old are you now? You still can't understand me or I have to speak um pidgin English to you every mm-hmm. time. So that's why I was like, well, why nobody ever tried to teach me? None of you speak to me. Mm-hmm. You're the only person who does. And she's asking everybody. And nobody's like, but then I started realizing that people in my house actually understand yeah. language. And then, she, then later on, I found out that people understood like three, four languages. We have Ghanaian blood too. So there's a bunch of tree, fancy going mm-hmm. on. And I was like, wait, but <laughs> how come I was the only person? You know, so, but. The English learning had gotten so into me that when I was in school, I became arrogant or uh, I, I bought into it so much that when we, uh, I had the opportunity to learn French, mm-hmm. I said, why do I need to learn French? I'm British. Mm-hmm. I, I belong to the British. So mm-hmm. I refuse to take notes. Yeah. <laughs> it like, yeah, beat me. I'll take the beatings. Yeah. <laughs> so in school, I was getting beat because I didn't care. Yeah. about learning French. I said, that's not a language nobody speaks. Only France speaks it. And mm-hmm. then I started finding out that other African countries <laughs> were French. I was like, actually, it was a job opportunity when I was around 18, 19. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and so I was like, wait, but it was that thing of we, we, we had to belong to English. And But I was like, but we're in Nigeria. We're not even in England. Right. <laughs> so why are we all fighting to be on the English side of things? And... So I think that's even how at a very early age I stopped supporting England at World Cup mm-hmm. and you couldn't find me in the English Premier League. I was just detaching because it's like when I started making those connections, like, wow, you all were beating English into me. Mm-hmm. I'm removing myself from England, I'm yeah. removing myself from the English. And, you know, so, so some people were like, oh, you hate England that much that you don't like English people. I said, no, I have English friends. I have English family because they have my, I have cousins as well born and raised in England, mm-hmm. so that, that, am I going to hate them? No, mm-hmm. it's not their fault. They didn't do anything to me. Mm-hmm. But that's that. It's just that the family thing of we had to belong to the extreme, and I saw how it was being used viciously on other people. And to this day, they still don't realize how damaging that was because yeah. we all can't speak our language. Mm-hmm. Only a few people can. And then it's like, but... You are you are an embarrassment for not being able to speak language. But I'm like, who teaches language? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Yeah. But you we all shout English. Mm-hmm. You must speak English. Yeah. Well, English, but it, how difficult if you don't mind me asking you some questions. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Um, it's a conversation. It's yeah. Lovely. So uh, you know, growing up obviously in Nigeria, Nigeria is a, a country of so many tribes and languages, yes. uh, and I suppose. You know, given the way the country was was created and the borders were drawn, mm-hmm. you know, having some language that was common to everybody made sense, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess you know, you took you know the, the colonial language was English, and so it made sense since the borders were drawn by the colonial powers to speak English. Um, but it must be very frustrating as a Nigerian to know that you know, your colonial rulers are the ones that dictated the lingua franca, for want of a better word, uh, of Niger- of your country. And I'm wondering if that's a common feeling or if you have it to you, just to yourself or... Uh, sometimes I, I understand the... I'm more understandable with having English as the language for... The, as one of the official languages. And... Where the problem arises for me is that growing up 
for a long time, it seemed like Ingl- um, the Yoruba house and Igbo were mm-hmm. like the big three. You yeah. know, the big three. Yep. Where, and it is just like stamped and said, these are the official languages. And then, but the way it's mapped out, it just seemed like no one else existed. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you're hit with, oh, there's about 300 ethnic groups and they all have their languages. And you're like, where, where, where are these people? Mm-hmm. And then, if I wasn't from the the uh, if I wasn't Ijaw from um, Bayosa or I didn't stay in Benin City, I wouldn't have met a whole bunch of tribes in the south. But in the north, I just started blanketing everybody as Hausa. Mm-hmm. So luckily, I've had um, one of the people from the north on the podcast who's from a tribe that's not Hausa. Mm-hmm. But back then, it's one of the reasons why we're having this fighting going on now, where everybody's like. I don't like Hausa people. I don't like, but you just blanket everyone. No, they're all Muslims. It's easy to say that because of this idea that only three languages existed. You're right. And so it's easy to just gravitate to English, but there's no way of saying, yes, we can have three official languages, but that doesn't mean we should erase every other language that right. exists. We should, there should be room for your language exists, but how about we have a way of unifying everybody mm-hmm. by introducing each other's cultures and languages mm-hmm. together. So it's just like these big three, you take it or leave it. If you yeah. complain, you're against unity. So mm-hmm. we have to stamp down on you hard and then it's bam, bam. Mm-hmm. So we're all indoctrinated into this um, cult. That's how I see it, like a cult. And then one day it's like somebody snaps out of it. I'm like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I exist. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where's my existence in this fabric of unity? Mm-hmm. I don't see it. Yeah. And then you start questioning, and then they're like, "Why are you questioning?" And then this person comes out and, "Wait, who are you? Your, your, your name? Why? Why is someone with a name that sounds Malian? How are you Nigerian? Like mm-hmm. I'm, well, my tribe? <laughs> what? Your people, your people exist in Nigeria? Yes, we do. Yeah. Have you been to this part of the country? No. But I thought you all house out there. We are not houses. There's no house even there. <laughs> like what? But the, all the maps we've seen said house. No. And then it's like, but so we don't know. It's just by the from the colonial days, they just gave Hausa to one whole region yeah. and everybody just goes with it. Well, there was a recognition, I think, from the early days of the of Nigeria um, that that was always going to be a struggle. I mean, that wasn't that the metaphor of the Nigerian knot, right? Mm. That was supposed to tie everybody together of all different ethnicities and cultures and stuff. I mean, I think it's there's been mixed success over since independence, but... Uh, mm. I don't know. It's... I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't believe the foundation was ever right. It was never a solid foundation. And to me, like, I don't personally believe in Nigeria as a country that, they, like, we have um, the, the like. Some I was talking to a good friend of mine. We both grew up in Portacourt. Uh, we're in Portacourt. I mean, we stayed in Portacourt at around the same time. He's in London now, and he brought up a point that the Southern Cameroons the Ambazonian region that's trying to break out of Cameroons, that have I ever noticed that their food and most of our food are similar, mm-hmm. that we have so much in common with those people than we do with other parts of the country. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's true, because I met Cameroonians when I was stationed in Bahrain, and they were brought well, one of their stews to me, and I was like, oh, uh, this is so familiar. I was trying, like, I've eaten this before. I've eaten, this looks like food I've eaten somewhere. And they're like, oh, yes, you guys call it uh, a dikankong, but we, we call it eru. Yeah. And I was like, wow. 
And he was, he was like, uh-huh, I told you. Mm-hmm. But it's like, so if we had once created a country by ourselves, I don't think we would have created a country with northern Nigeria. We probably wouldn't. Or maybe if we had, it would have been a different deal. Mm-hmm. But this deal that um, Britain used was more of we give power to a certain clique and it's just these three tribes. And we still don't know the exact number because it's the sensor is always bent towards favoring the big three. And now the big three is technically two because the Igbos have always been marginalized for like forever. And it just becomes so lopsided. And the moment you start digging into it, there's always like holes and gaps and holes and gaps. And you're like, oh, yeah. And then people start going, why are we even one country? Mm-hmm. Why are we one country? It doesn't make sense. So they, they have to just, it's either they have a restructuring or I hate, I hate to say it, but restructuring, civil war, or I don't know if there can be a peaceful breakup, but mm-hmm. you know, that's one of those three things that just has to happen. Yeah. So that's where I see it. And, but that's, but it's part of the cracks that started happening a while back. And every time I meet my tribesmen, I attend meetings and I'm sitting down looking at the, the views, the opinions being given. And it's still like, yeah, but we belong to this union. We need to, and I'm like, how? We're still, it's still going by the same old things that we've been suffering. So how, we, how is it going to be different this time? Oh, we'll get power one way or the other. What is the one way or the other? It's still the same yeah. thing. So do, are we, are we going to be recognized? We're not recognized. We only, we're lucky to get a president. And people were like, and we saw how the attacks were so vicious against him. Like people weren't happy that a guy who, his disqualification was that he was a minority. Mm-hmm. But is he qualified to be president? He was the first president who was, was like uh, non-military um, a professor, had a background in education. And, but there were people who were angry about saying, so you have to be military and you have to be. And it's like, but how many of us are in those places? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was just like, nah, it's, <laughs> it's not working. So they have to go back to the drawing board. We can't we can rely on what Britain used to set up a country that the people who set it up had never even been there Yeah, to create. Had, they were all countries, and then you join them together to form one nation. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to me. But we'll see. Hopefully, it can be a peaceful resolution. But uh, I'm not optimistic about that. Yeah, from your lips. Yeah. <laughs> But back to your story, it's okay. more interesting than my views. <laughs> so, uh, when did you, uh, you know, with all that had happened to you, with all that you had experienced, when did you start to, you know, be inspired to take the steps or, uh, you know, embrace the journalism, you know, like, I know it wasn't, let me not say, I'm not going into university yet, but, or maybe closer to university, but when did that, you know, when will you say the, uh, I won't say epiphany, but like uh, the lights, you know, or the paths, when did the paths start to open up for you? Like maybe this was something that was calling to you? Um, so I had been in the States, uh, I was a sophomore in high school, so it was my second year mm-hmm. over here. And um, I'm not going to pretend that I was a particularly um, good student because I wasn't. Um, I tended to have two grades, A and D, 
Um, and somehow in the middle <laughs> was my grade point average. Um, <laughs> but if it involved writing, um, I usually did, did fine. Um, if it involved anything else, I didn't. That sounds uh, like me. And so, <laughs> like writing. <laughs> yeah. So in my sophomore year, I had a teacher who took one of my essays and, and, um, and, and uh, it was an essay on using, wearing, um, razor blades as jewelry. And I can't remember much else about it, but she was really impressed with it and encouraged me at that point. Um, now, when did I decide I wanted to become a journalist? I think almost from that moment forward, it was somehow in the back of my mind that that's what I would want to do. Now, uh, you know, I, I was motivated by many things at that time, um, not necessarily education. So I went to college. Um, I ended up dropping out. Um, and I took a number of jobs, including in sales. And, and I had a kid at home at that point. And uh, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't happy. And I walked into a small newspaper in southern New Jersey. Um, and uh, it was just outside, Can just outside Camden, um, across the river from Philadelphia. And I said, uh, I'd like to become a, a reporter or a journalist. And rather than laugh at me, the woman said, well, if you can go up to Willingboro, New Jersey, and write a story about this evening's school board meeting, you can start work as a stringer right now. And a stringer is a freelancer. Oh. And stringer. And so I don't even know if, I think it's an anachronistic term these days. I don't know if anyone uses it, but that's what they called it back then. This was 1991. And basically within a few months, I was what they called a full-time stringer, which is basically a freelancer uh, with no benefits. Yeah. And within the year, I was a full-time staffer. And that was it. Um, you know, um, I, it would be almost impossible for anyone to break through into the business nowadays yeah. um, that way. But, you know, uh, back then, some people got lucky. Wow. Um, so that's, that's how it happened. When you mentioned school board meeting, I was like, man, there have been a lot of school board meetings that have gone viral lately. Yeah. <laughs> well, the I, I, Willingboro back in the day um, would have been one of those if they had been broadcast that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were volatile meetings. Wow. Um, of course, they were wrestling with a lot of the socioeconomic issues mm. that we face today. Immigrant populations moving into town, established... Uh, white communities resenting it, mm. not wanting to accommodate. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was at the beginning of that, the cusp of of the, some of those issues that are that we're facing today in yeah. in many ways. And so, you know, my ambition was not to cover school board meetings, but mm. if I had paused for a second and thought about it, I would have realized that these were. Uh, the individual stories and the the uh, local conflicts that we continue to face today. Mm. So I'd like to continue, but before we do that, I'd like to take a quick break and we'll be right back shortly. Hi everyone, your host Raphael Harry here. I can't believe we have gone past our one-year anniversary 
of doing White Label American. I've had the privilege of speaking with some amazing people, sharing their modern day immigrant stories. And you've allowed this Nigerian immigrant to share parts of his immigrant journey through this podcast. Also, one of my goals of this podcast is breaking down artificial walls that keep people from getting to understand each other. Based on your wonderful feedback over the last year, I think we have done a decent job in breaking down some of those walls. We would like to continue and expand on this mission, but we need your help. I've had an amazing time creating and producing episodes for this show largely on my own. We have a lot of ideas for new and exciting content to expand upon the mission, but we need direct support from you, our listener, which is why we have created a White Label American Patreon page where you can make a one-time donation or become a sustaining contributor where you can get access to exclusive content, help me interview upcoming guests by submitting questions, and even have the chance to sit down with me for a one-on-one conversation, either virtually or in studio. So if this podcast means something to you, and if you really love this show, think about becoming a sustaining contributor and donating by going to patreon.com slash white label american pod thanks for listening and for the privilege of your company so welcome back and thank you for joining us and we shall continue in the world of journalism oh before we continue with journalism uh, we are touched on your return well, so let me go back a little bit. When you returned back to the UK, you had mentioned, you know, your your dad picking an area that you guys weren't um, accepted. Um, from the sound of things, did he do the same in in uh, New Jersey? Yeah, exactly the same thing. Now, I, I will say that I found at that time the U.S. to be a liberating place, um, that I didn't have the same issues that I faced when I came, when I when I moved to the U.K. Um, so, but it was still odd. I mean, we moved, you know, my father bought this big house on, a, on an acre of land in a, in a town where we clearly were the only ones, or at least one of a very small handful um, yeah. Of uh, uh, Jewish families, and you know, I think because my mother was not Jewish, she was she converted for him. I think to some extent, he did this for her, right? Um, that she, he bought houses and places in places that he thought would make her happy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, we could talk, or you know, my sh- you know my shrink and I have discussed my father and my mother many times, but in this case, I think that this was a gesture always to her, um, because she was, even though she was born in, in in Kenya, she was of English stock, and she had she was raised by a very English mother, and so she had those sensibilities, and you know the pastoral life and all that 
you know, the Rose Gardens and, oh, you know, yeah. um, that was part of her. And I think he was, he, he was attempting to please her. Mm. Um, you know, he dragged her all over the world and, and yet he chose places that he thought would make her feel more comfortable and happy. Mm. Whether he succeeded, I don't know. I mean, you know, that first generation of immigrants, and I, and I don't really count myself in that group, but my father... You know, they have dreams about what it means to be an immigrant. Yes. And, and they want, they, they're doing it to, to improve their lives, yeah. right? Whether it's to escape from persecution or to find some a, a better living or whatever it is. Immigrants are doing it because they want to uplift themselves and their families, right? They believe that that choice they're making um, whether forced or otherwise, you know, if maybe it's not a choice, but that movement from one place to another is for the for the betterment of their families. Mm. And That's I know true. that my father did that, but I will say that I also don't think he ever found peace in any of the countries he lived in. Mm. Um, that he was always, as much as I was an outsider, he was an outsider ten times more. Um, you know, he did. I, I learned the cultural ticks that allow you to move freely within a, in, in my new country. I, you know, whether it's what type of shoes to wear or what type of socks to wear yeah. or the jewelry that's okay or the trousers that you should wear yeah. or the music. My father never connected at that level culturally. And so he was always a foreigner. Yeah. Um, and he would try desperately to fit in and he would desperately fail every time. Um, and so once he left Khartoum, I'm not sure that he ever found peace again. And it's really kind of sad because nice. um, he struggled so hard. Sometimes he had success, sometimes he didn't. But it was this endless swinging back and forth of not being able to succeed. And, uh, you know... I have a lot of sympathy for him. You know, we didn't get along very well. Uh, but I do sympathize for the, his struggles and the difficulties. And I don't think it's unique. I think, that, no. I think that almost every adult immigrant faces those issues in, in, to one degree or another. I agree with that. Um, I agree with that um, assessment because um, my mom falls into that category and... She, uh, you know, when, when she, she told me she was going back to Nigeria after being here for, what, three decades. And it was kind of like a last minute. I think she, she, it was at the very last minute she told me that she was going back. And by then, I, I'm not, it's not like I would have stopped her from going. But I was just worried about her health and, um, you know, the security situation in where she chose to go to. But I understood that because she, when she finally decided to leave Nigeria and move out here, I, if I had been in the position to advise her then, I don't think I would have told her to go. I would have told her to stay mm -hmm. knowing her personality. Yeah. I would have said, stay, you, you, you're better off. In Nigeria, things were not that bad for you. Things were actually on the, on the upside for her. But whoever advised her said, oh, it's better for you to go. And 
she she just couldn't restart life then mm-hmm. it was a struggle and you know it just didn't work out and seeing that all the, well, by the time i arrived and i saw it it was because you you get a different picture when you're not there you on you talking to her on the phone you're getting letters it's a different picture and then when i finally arrived i was like oh wow this is yeah this is not what i was being told and this is now i'm seeing a different totally different thing and like this i, I know this person and even though we had we have our issues we have our disagreements it doesn't mean i don't wish you well i don't want you to mm-hmm. um, have peace or have um, you know to, to to enjoy yourself i know the environments you thrive in the united states at that point in time wasn't where she was going to thrive in even if she had moved to another country it wasn't the only place i could see her thriving in was like ghana mm-hmm. that was the closest so it was the only option was for her to go back Yeah. And now that she's back home, it's you can t- see the difference. You can see that you know, she's back where she knows financially it's not uh, it's not advisable because she waited a little bit she waited too long to go back, but um yeah, other than that, but you know, psychologically, emotionally, you know, she's uh still practicing on the religious side. I'm also not religious. I'm an atheist too. And she's uh, she's thriving in all that. That's mm-hmm. what she wants. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's what she needed. Yeah. Because she doesn't have to fight anymore to belong because by the time she moved here, she was she made her final choice, her final um because she had been coming to the states and go back. She had been coming go back and then she said, "Okay, I'm going to migrate finally." She was in a Well, she was almost 60. Yeah. And it was like, who are the people that advised you to start life all over again? And yeah, it was it was a struggle because uh, the fights that she had with my elder brother, I, I understood that and I, I could see the whole, I could see why it was happening. Not that I'm si- taking anybody's side, but I could see why it was happening because when people will be like oh you because she's she wants to try to adjust but people are like but you're this age you mm-hmm. shouldn't this is not for you mm-hmm. you know and you're too old and, and but she's like i can i can i can i can adjust i can adjust like yeah but we'll see your age mm-hmm. kind <laughs> of thing so it, it, I, i i understand from that point of view and because there's some people who are like oh but your mom did this to you your mom did that why you, just, you know i would have written I, i won't talk to her anymore i'm like i don't necessarily need to talk to her but i don't hate her mm-hmm. because i can see why i can see the humanity in her struggles i can see the in her mistakes i can see the human being making the mistakes there so i empathize with that person yeah yeah so that i, I don't have time to do, be of hate on all that when whatever her mistakes are that's for her to deal with but um yeah I'm, i think that's part of my therapy also yeah. speaking <laughs> there too so Yeah, but it's something that I understand for immigrants. It it took me a little bit to get to that stage to start seeing it that wow, when immigrants move from one place to another and begin life all over. I think that's another thing that I noticed while I was in the military. I think I began to notice it when I was in the military because when you move from one duty station to another mm-hmm. and it's like you start all over there and I think I met someone's 
I met I met a woman who was actually uh, she was from Australia and she married a service. Um, I think her husband's in the navy or army. I can't recall which one. And she talked about meeting the guy over twenty years ago, and he was like, "Oh, I'm just gonna stay for like two years, and then I'll be out." And then twenty years later, I'm here, and I don't have a career and all this, and like, so you had to restart your life everywhere because she can't she can't keep a job, yeah, because she has to live her life according to. The man's career, and I was like, "Yeah, this not gonna be me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that." So there's that part of the struggle, and you look at all that, you're like, "Wow, that's yeah." So uh, I, I empathize with, with decisions a whole lot of people make, and the journey of a whole lot of immigrants, and it, 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 I, I understand. I understand. I see the humanity there, yeah. and I. It's not easy to make that adaptation, and I understand those who say that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm going back. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's two things. I mean, it's language, mm-hmm. obviously, but it's more than that. It's it's the language, the cultural language as well. Yeah, and I think actually, in some ways, that's a much harder thing to learn. It is much harder. Um, it's it's why children come and adapt so quickly is yes. because they're they're fungible and. Yeah, the sponge. Yeah, and and so they they see it and they pick up on it and it's subconscious. Whereas adults, we're kind of ossified, and mm. you know, it takes time for us to pick up on. And some of those cues we never pick up on, That's even right. if we understand and speak the language perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really very difficult, um, and I think it takes a lot of effort um, to to learn that way. Um, and I, you know. Yeah, I have huge sympathy for, for immigrants and do whatever I can to support them in any way I can. That's right. So, um, one big part of your journalism is reporting on climate change. Mm-hmm. So, why is that so important to you? Well, uh, most of my career I didn't cover climate change. My last two projects... So I should, let me just explain a little bit about my job because it'll give some context here. So um, for most of the last 15, 20 years, I have worked in positions where I do project work, which means to say that I spend a fair amount of time on stories, investigating, doing data analysis, Mm -hmm. uh, reporting, writing. I don't write every day. In fact, I don't write every month. uh, and over the course of my career, um, you know, I've done big stories on banking. I've done big stories on uh, healthcare and and Medicare. I've done big stories on crime and punishment and people who are wrongly convicted. And you know, I don't like to be reporting and writing on the same subject for a, an extremely long period of time. This is probably been the longest period I have stayed on the same subject, in part because I think it's a particularly important subject, not just for regionally, but globally. So um, I I guess my last project before the most recent one was um, I had talked to some people who had suggested that there was evidence that fisheries around the world were um, migrating north as the oceans were warming up. So how do you gauge that? I mean, fish swim everywhere, right? You know, it's not like us who, when we move, we have to get a moving van and 
mm-hmm. load it up and move. Mm-hmm. Um, fish just go wherever the water is suitable for them and they can get eat enough food. Yes. And so that project evolved into something called Ocean Shock, which was a description of how the oceans themselves are being impacted by climate change. Um, that was my first uh, venture into science reporting. It was my first attempt at uh, climate change reporting. It was really well received. And my boss asked me to continue, um, which led to the, the late, most recent project, which was uh, an examination of who... Uh, basically, it was six profiles, in-depth profiles, of some of the most influential climate scientists in the world. And, and when I say in-depth, I spent... Months over t- over time, months with all of them on holiday, at work, uh, at re- you know researching. Um, I can't tell you how many. Once a pandemic hit, how many, how much time I spent on Skype and Teams and Zoom and such, talking with these folks. But the idea was that we wanted to tell the story of the scientists, not just the science, mm-hmm. to give a context. Why are these people doing what they're doing? What are the mo- what motivates them when it seems so dire and the prospects of finding a solution so unlikely? Um, why do they continue? And and th- they were all incredibly optimistic um, that ultimately we will find a solution to our man-made problem climate change so um whether i do another climate change story remains to be seen but maybe well i'm happy that they're optimistic because man it's uh it's tough um when it comes to climate change because was it uh 2019 or 2018 i think it was 2018 I still have my former podcast partner. Yeah, it was 2018. So um, New York Magazine had a climate change event at New York Times. And um, the, the other gentleman who I said school in Cano, he he runs, he's the co-founder of the New York, uh, well, it was formerly, well, it's still the New York Supply Chain Meetup and it's expanded to the worldwide supply chain meetup. Mm-hmm. So they, they used to meet on, uh, they, they started from just a meetup group and now it's like a big group of um, people into supply chain around the world and it's, um, sustainable businesses, uh, one of the big topics and climate change also gets to be discussed there. And he just put this post at this event, like, hey, you know, they, they're going, this is something that affects us being supply professionals because mm-hmm. I used to do handle supply chain in the military. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, let me go check it out. And I went there and, man, there was, there, there, there was all the, the um, I've forgotten his name, the gentleman who was the first person, he's credited with being the first person to uh, report on climate change, address Congress on climate change. Uh, this was way over 30 years ago. And when he first brought it up, he was, he was talking about how um, there was bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. It was like the golden age, and it, it just seemed like a, a different universe he was talking about yeah. back then. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> All this was happening? And it just seemed like, yeah, every, everything could have been solved. But, and then it started changing all of a sudden. And one of the, the most, it, it was at that event that I began to realize that even as a kid in Nigeria, 
they had been talking about climate change without saying climate change because one of the languages that uh, one, one word that picked up pretty early was desertification. Mm -hmm. And almost every regime, because I grew up under the military, every military administration always talked about um, allocating funds to fight against the, uh, the, the, the desertification of some northern states. The Sahara Desert is encroaching. And I was like, well, but Sahara Desert, what? And, you know, and it was, that was also what led to one of the bias that I had, um, my, my removal of one of the bias that I had, because we used to always assume that all northerners were dressed in mo uh, modestly, like covering their bodies because of Sharia law. Mm -hmm. And then it was later I found out that um, due to the wind blowing sands, mm -hmm. that uh, yeah, you need to cover your body. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can get paralyzed from the sands hitting you. Yeah. So it's excuse me, it's not a matter of um, I have a choice. Or I want to. Uh, you expose your body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, you you're just damaging yourself. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I can't I can't be yeah, in the south. It's different. But up there, and then I started hearing about pollutions in in uh, my part of the country, and then. Um, I read a magazine once and they were talking about um, acid rain and I was like wait what acid rain and then they mentioned Niger Delta I was like what you mean I've been in acid rain all this time <laughs> wait what but then I still didn't know it was climate change you know I didn't mm -hmm. realize all that was added into the, the climate change until you know and was at this conference that when they, they started presenting pictures of different parts of the world and they showed some parts of, uh, they showed a village in Mali. Uh, yeah, it was a village in Mali from the 60s and they showed the desert, the Sahara Desert. And then they showed in um, that same village in 2015, the desert was literally over the village. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this is what they talk about. Yeah. Northern Nigeria, what they've been trying to prevent. But as kids, we've been hearing this stuff, but I can, I can assure you all the people in my generation who had that fighting desertification, they didn't, it still doesn't apply. They don't, it doesn't apply to the brain when you say, oh, we've been fighting climate change or we've been trying to, it doesn't add up when you talk to them today that this is what they've been trying to do then because it's, it, we, we just saw it as something that uh, was used to steal funds. You know, yeah. it was just corruption. So, ah, these people. Then, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a bit like the frog in the boiling water, isn't it? I mean, you know, you put the frog in the water when the water's cool and you turn on the stove and yeah. the, the frog never realizes it's cooking. Exactly. And so, you know, you, you grow up and every year it gets incrementally warmer and drier or whatever the mm -hmm. circumstances are. It's really difficult as mm -hmm. humans because of the way, you know, our lifespan to really appreciate how things have fundamentally changed. It takes pictures, as you suggested, to really illustrate what's going on, whether it's satellite images of lakes in, in Iran, for example, or it's, uh, you know, villages that have been overrun by sand, sand yeah. from the it, desert. Even um, Lake Chad. Yeah. Uh, um, there was, I was at an event also with my um, people from Major Delta, and there was this big argument about, you know, all the terrorist groups and all the others. And I was like, you don't realize that since... Lake Chad started drying up. Insecurity started increasing. Mm -hmm. So it's another reason why when the Pentagon released that 
report in 20, was it 2015 or 2016 about the biggest threats to security being climate change. Yeah. I, I agreed. I was like, yes, there's, it, it's climate change because I, I've, I've not seen a single place that's affected by climate change where you have security, where, where it's, it's, uh, security is stable mm-hmm. in the world. It's, it's not, but I, I think that's something that uh, people frowned at me at the conference when I said that because I was, they were, it wasn't what they were expecting because I think they were expecting me to attack the religion that wasn't mm-hmm. the dominant religion in my, uh, part of the country and I was like I don't know it's because we have we, we also as soon as the rain the rains have been increasing in our part because we have the rivers and mm-hmm. as soon as the rains increase what happens we're all flooded mm-hmm. and I was like w- w- in our records what happened do we have records of this amount of rainfall why why are we getting so much flooding now everybody's yeah yeah I, I think that's one of the reasons why um the term global warming has kind of fallen out of favor I mean it's yeah. a practical matter yes the planet is getting warmer, uh, but that has different effects in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly if you were to look at the, the northern and southern extremes of the planet, you're going to see warmer. The, you know, you're going to see what the warm is doing. The ice, there's less ice, there's less permafrost, the, all those kinds of things. But in some places of the world, there's more rain. Yeah. Um, in other places of the world, on the on the coastal areas, you get more flooding because the sea levels are rising. In other places, it's dry. In the interior of some parts, some continents, you're going to get more dry weather. Um, so it manifests itself in very, in different ways. The the weather is going to become more volatile. The oceans, the ocean currents are going to stop moving as quickly, and all of those have knock on effects that we can that, that scientists probably. Uh, many scientists can reasonably predict what's going to happen, some of which have already started to come to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's tough. you know. It's, it, if I look up and it's raining every day, some parts of the world are actually cooler. If you look, oh, yeah. if you look at a map of the planet, for example, and look at the, the mean, uh, the, the temperature uh, anomalies, that is that it's below or above some type of average over the course of time, you will see a spot south on the ocean south of Greenland that is cooler and the rest of the world is hotter. Mm. You know? Well, you know, my understanding is that, that that part of that is that there's a runoff from the glaciers from um, Greenland, which is putting fresh water into the oceans, which is cooler than the ocean itself. That water sits on the surface and is cooling the water. Now you would think because it's cooler that yeah. would be an in that would be refuting the fact that there's climate change and global warming when in fact what you have is an effect from one part affecting another part that illustrates why that it's it's more than just warming it's it's climate chaos at times it's mm. it's it's things happening in ways that have not happened for a very long period of time and very quickly and um, counterintuitively sometimes. So, do, do you ever get feedback to your stories when when you when you put out um your projects mm-hmm. when you put out projects so like climate change with the way it's been so politicized over especially in America? Mm-hmm. Uh, since you've put out this project, 
Have people been like, oh, you're trying to put this agenda, you're trying to sell the Do people ever... Um, yeah, I mean, you get always get in? some of that, but honestly, in the last one, there was it was minimal. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, if you read the stories, um, I think they're balanced and, and fair. Um, you know, I don't try to, I don't try to pretend <clears throat> that, um, climate change is not real, um, because it, it clearly is, but there are reasonable, reasonable people can disagree on what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Reasonable people can disagree on the extent that the future will change, um, within a range yeah. of possibilities. What isn't reasonable, in my opinion, is to assume that the planet is somehow just going through a natural cycle because there is virtually no evidence of that. Oh, yeah. Yep, I have lost someone because of that. (laughs) Anytime I post the climate change story, it's like, it's just one of those things, man. Stop worrying about that. (laughs) Well, Uh, you know, it's not, I don't worry about me. I worry about my children and my children's exactly. children and, you know, your children and your children's mm-hmm. children and, and what kind of world are they going to live in? Yeah. You know, I mean, think about your relatives in, in Nigeria. Um, you know, I, I read somewhere, someone suggests, you know, as long as you live on a line, a parallel line north of Paris to, to Munich or Berlin or whatever it was, that you know, you're going to be fine. In other words, the planet is going to be eminently livable in the northern and southern, far northern and far southern hemispheres. But below there, you're going to face issues. And there's there's some truth to that, that, uh, you know, the climate, you know, what are you going to do when when you can't grow crops anymore and Uh, feed your population? Below that line, isn't that like the majority of the population? (laughs) Probably. Um, I, I, I don't know where the line really is, but the, the, the point, though, is that there's a great, there's a huge swath of the planet yep. that is going to become increasingly difficult to live, and that's going to result in migrations. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is not going to be welcomed. Um, I mean, we only have to look to Europe to see what's happened that's in true. response to the, the migrations, uh, the migra- migrants coming from North Africa and from Syria. Uh, to know that, you know, people don't necessarily welcome foreigners stepping onto the, into their country and uh, asking for help, you know. And that can only get worse if, as climate change gets worse. Well, that's true. True all the way. But yeah, that's, that's uh, my main reason for worrying about climate change is not really for me, it's for the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in covering this project, and you know, um, well, before I, okay, I'll I postpone this question because uh, you do your journalism, but there's still other things that you do. And let me see. So, which one should I go with first? All right. So, you also, like you said, you, you don't do a lot of writing for your projects nowadays. But there's something that you do a lot of writing on, which you've put out there. So, um, but it's not in a traditional form yet, but mm. it's on your website. Mm-hmm. So, do we call it an ebook without calling it an ebook? 
Uh, you know what it is? It, <laughs> it, it's it, it was it's a hobby. And, you know, I once had my early early in my career as a journalist, I was told by a, an editor who I have the, the most respect for that, um, that, you know, a writer writes to be read. Mm. And if you want to call yourself a writer and um, and and you don't let anyone read it, that's like masturbation. Right. It's like, you know, yeah, it's 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 OK and it's fun. But, you know, there's there's a greater purpose to life than <laughs> masturbation. So um, I, uh, you know, I, I had been working on this this idea for yeah. uh, for some time and um, decided, you know, it's not finished. The pandemic was going on. I didn't know when I was going to finish it. And I thought, well, you know, let me just put it out there and and see and just see you know without any expectations or anything it's just it was sitting there on my computer um and i decided to make it just put it on and see if anyone read it a few people did um i don't know if it's very good but you know to the extent that i like to call myself a writer uh i felt that this was an experiment uh that i could i could just do and you know uh, and that's what I did. Just put it out there. I, I think you're a writer. I, I see you as a writer. Well, I I enjoyed reading it. I haven't read it all the way, but I have to. And I was I was it actually encouraged me. I was like, because I have stuff that I've written down. I'm like ah, but now I realize that mine is like it's more like it's more like my masturbation now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm encouraged now to share mine. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. as you said that I was like, wow, that's uh yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my wife's gonna laugh at this one now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have um I have a good friend who's uh my former English professor and he yeah, he is always like Put it out there, man. Put it out. Just write. And, you know, put it out there. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I worry. I get to it. I get to it. And then I write like five paragraphs. And then I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't like the ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I want to change something. I, I'll come back to it. And then two years have passed. Yeah. <laughs> ah. So you're also a sailor. Mm-hmm. And how how did you come about that? So um, we visited when when I was a kid. Um, there was a, a Lebanese family that we had known that my father had known when he was a kid in Khartoum, and some of those relatives also lived in Kanu. Hmm. Uh, it was and that family invited us to spend a summer with them in upstate New York, uh, in a little town called Gloversville, and. Um, this was 1976. It was the bicentennial year, and uh, so we spent a summer in, in in Gloversville. And there was a day camp, such as an American concept, but yeah, uh, so it was a day camp. Yeah, so we would go to this <laughs> camp every day uh, in the summertime, and I had never experienced anything like this. But they had a little sunfish there, wow. and um, that's where I first sailed, and. The moment I got on that, I thought it was the coolest thing that you could just sit in, on a on a boat with a piece of 
you know, because obviously, I mean, I grew up in Kano and in, you know, there's no water in Kano. Mm -hmm. There's no lakes. I mean, there was a dam we used to visit every now and then, but we couldn't touch the water because we'd get Belhartia. So we couldn't you go swimming or anything. I mean, yeah. you know, water is dangerous. Standing water in Africa is dangerous. Mm -hmm. You got to be careful. Yeah. Right. Um, but here in Gloversville, New York, there was this little sailboat and I could go out by myself and the wind would push me along and I could steer it. And I thought that was pretty magical. And that was how I got turned on to sailing. And, you know, episodically over the next few years, I would find my way onto a boat and go again. But, you know, then I started raising a family and, you know, I gave up all things that weren't related to making money and, and raising a family. And I guess about 20 years ago now, 20, maybe even a little longer back, I said, I, I, now I want, I, I'm in a position now I can afford to buy a boat and start sailing more regularly. And, and I've been doing it ever since I've been living on a, on my boat now since 2009. The wow. winter of 2009. Now, this winter, I'm not on the boat because I was getting some repairs done. But okay. uh, for most of the last 12 years, I have been living on the boat in the New York area. And the name of your boat? Zenora. Zenora. How, how did that come about? Well, first, before I get to that, let me tell you a story about that. So um, this is a this was a big boat for me. I mean, it was going. It's a fifty three foot boat, and I was, you know, I wanted something bigger, something that could take me further. And I was on a thirty six foot boat at the time, and I was looking around, and I couldn't decide: do I really want to do this? It was a big decision. Um, and uh, you know, I was, I had pretty much decided against it. And a friend of mine from Florida, because the boat was in Florida at the time, I'd gone down, I'd looked at the boat, I'd, you know, I was really hemming and hawing about what to do. And, you know, as some people want to do, I sat down with a bottle of rum and I tried, started to figure out whether I wanted to do this. And I got an email or a text message, I don't remember now, from a friend of mine, an old sailor mate from Florida. And in it, he had a link to Harry Belafonte's song, jump in the line right mm -hmm. and if you if you recall that song jump in the line he says hey senora right but he doesn't pronounce it like senora his spanish is a little crooked and he says hey senora yeah. <laughs> right if you listen to this well at least it sounded that way to me after a few shots of rum and so i played it over and over again until the bottle was done and i was thoroughly wasted and I decided I, I, if there's a song, you know, if, if my boat already has a song for her, then clearly I should own this boat. And that's how I made the decision to buy her over that bottle of rum and listening to Harry Belafonte about 20 times that night singing Hey Zenora in his, in his terrible Spanish. Ah. Uh, anyway, so the name itself um, comes from the previous owner. Um, so they're from um, the Cornwall area of, of England. Uh, the boat was, they used to sail it around the Caribbean and go back home yeah. um, to Cornwall. And so they are longtime sailors. They, they, they were older now. Um, and they came from a village called Zenor. Uh, oh. Zenor, excuse me, Zenor. Zenor. And 
there's a legend in Zanor that the, the, there was a priest um, who worked at this church that had a wonderful choir, and it was right on the, just above the rocks on the ocean. And the choir was so good that the mermaids would come down and they would climb out of the water and sit on the rocks and listen to the choir sing. And one day the priest goes down to talk to them and he was never heard of again. He had fallen in love with one of the mermaids and disappeared (laughs) into the ocean. And, you know, so they named their first boat uh, the Maid of of Zenor. Zenor, excuse me. And Zenor, yeah. And so their second boat they bought, um, they wanted to keep the same theme going, but this was a really fast boat, so they called her the Witch of Zenor or Zenor. Zenor. Yeah. And so their third boat, that boat was too big for them. They decided they needed to make it a little smaller, believe it or not. They came down to my boat, but they wanted to keep uh, the name going. And um, so... Uh, in the village, the, uh, a diminutive name for girls is uh, Zenora. And so they decided, since they were going to a smaller boat, Zenora would be a good name. Now, changing the name of a boat is fraught if you have any superstitions whatsoever. And you'll forgive me, as a as an atheist, I should be above these things, yeah. but I'm probably the most superstitious person you, you'll ever meet. <laughs> And in order to change the name of a boat, it requires, you know, there, there are all kinds of rituals that people suggest, you know, everything from toasting the various gods of the depths to mm-hmm. uh, there are some traditions that say you have to have a virgin urinate on the bow of the boat. Oh, my goodness. Uh, right? Well, I couldn't find a virgin, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I decided that, you know, no, 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 I'm not going to change the name. And I love the story about mermaids and i love that story too <laughs> so i said you know i'm not going to change and i've never actually you know I, my lot the boat before that i didn't change that boat's name was calliope or calliope, calliope. um calliope was yeah, one I of the muse of epic poetry yeah. right um from from the greek tradition of mythology so you know as a writer i thought the idea of having a boat named after a, a muse and a poet seemed appropriate to me so i kept it and in the case of zenora you know of, of course these are simply rationalizations so i don't have to deal with the uh with the superstitious issues that i was clearly going to face <laughs> if i was going to change the name <sighs> you know what i've come up with a new theory being that you grew up uh, well you, you 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 had a good number of years in Kano, and then you ended up being a sailor believing the, the um Aquatic uh, superstitions. Uh, I, I think you're an Ijo man. You just didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, you're an Ijo man because you 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 take to water. You take to sailing. Yeah, and the mermaid. As soon as you brought that mermaid story, I was like, "Yep, that's an Ijo man right there." That's uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds that's yeah. Too many mermaid stories I've heard about from being with um, yeah. When I go by. Uh, Gogoro with the for the Ijo people, mm. you know. Yeah, I'm in an Ijo village. Uh, I just go into the little shanties and like, yeah, shots for all the uncles and the the, the papas here. And they're like, man, come come see that. Let, let me tell you something. When I was fishing twenty years ago, <laughs> there was this mermaid I saw. Like, man, who who else saw this mermaid with you? I was the only one on the river, like two a.m. in the morning. I was like, 
Well, you know, yeah. give him another shot. Again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you, we, we've we've um, we've adopted you as an Ijoman now. Thank you very much. Oh. I'm, I'm honored, really. <laughs> so to start, uh, before I, um, I'm getting ready to wrap up, but I got to ask some fun questions. Okay. Um, final questions. So, um, so this will be the final two questions. Or well, there'll be three questions, but first one will be food. Where would you say your heart belongs to when it comes to favorite food or favorite cuisine? Um, Middle Eastern food, for mm. sure. I mean, there is a a dish that uh, my grandmother made um, called mulakhia, and it is uh, jute leaves, dry, well, jute leaves, um, sometimes called juice marrow, uh, but it's it's the peasant food of much of the Middle East from Lebanon, Egypt, you know, parts of that part of the world. Yeah. And um, uh, my grandmother taught me how to cook it, and I oh. cooked it for all my children, right. and they're constantly asking me to cook it for them. Oh, great. And um, I continue to cook it in great quantities in the winter too, and then I freeze it. But in the summertime, not so much. But, uh, yeah, for sure, I think that that's where my food now, – now, a little sere, you know, that, that stuff, those those beef sticks they would put around the fires with the hot peanut. Um, in Kano, they used to have this dish where, you know, you'd have a, a fire pit. Oh, like suya. Yeah, is that how you say it? Suya, it's, yeah. Suya, and it's it's a peanut chili powder they put on the beef and they, they yep. put it around the fire. Um, I have on occasion made that. That's delicious too. Mm. Um so that's my favorite. So did dish you do the flat meat or you? Yeah, the flat meat. Okay, the flat yeah. meat. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had the flat meat in ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, music. So, three favorite artists from each place you've called home, or oh, well, that's going to be tough. But um, or Elvis, you can just go with New York. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so um, Elvis Costello. From my youth in 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 the UK, I mean, I guess I evolved from the Sex Pistols and Pill to more sophisticated new wave music. And Elvis has always had a special place in my heart. Um, uh, so he would be on my list. Uh, Puccini, um, in my early twenties, uh, I fell in love with Italian opera, and I continue to love Italian opera. Uh, even though I don't understand a single word of Italian, other than basta. <laughs> but there's something about the language itself that's so yeah. uh, emotive, and which is in, and it's an interesting language too, because we talked about this, about Nigeria not having a one language. Well, yeah. Italy didn't have one language for a long time. There were dialect. Every, every region had its own dialect, and some of them were very different from one another. And it wasn't until unification, which was not that long ago, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I wish I had the dates in front of me, where they started to come up with a unified idea of what the language was. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that's an aside. I, 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 I love Italian opera, and in particular, I love, I love Italian opera too. Uh, Puccini. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to say a third one, but uh, I was, uh, you know, 
I was on my phone the other day and I was trying to pick what music I was going to listen to when I went for my run. And I got the suggestion, you know, you know, your music from 2020, which is what I've played on this app for all of 2020, the Uh best of. (laughs) And I came to realize that I have stopped listening to pop music and I'm listening to classical music and folk music and my taste in music has somehow shifted over the years now where I find myself listening to music that's like older than I am, um, much older than I am, sometimes hundreds of years older than I am. And I'm not sure what that says about me, except that it's changed. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's my three. Uh, what what you said about Italy reminded me of um, the Italian, uh, my, my friend whose wife is from Molfetta. And uh, when she was breaking down Italian dialects and the differences, and I was like, this is a whole, we need to do an episode just on this. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and we could talk about the difference between talking in London and talking in Glasgow, for example. You know, um, there's a big difference on the British Isles as well. Uh, I, I need to get my, I'm, I'm trying to do an episode with my English, uh, my, my English cousin and my Scottish cousins because I have cousins in uh, oh, that Edinburgh. Would be, yeah, that would be really wonderful and, because. Yeah, the, but they're, they're on two different wavelengths. So they don't, I don't even know if they see eye to eye, but okay. <laughs> that would be fun. Well, it's okay because they could argue with one another and nobody would understand <laughs> really. It would just be entertaining to listen to the different voices. <laughs> I'll be here like, um, yes, I'm the host. Yeah. And I was born in Nigeria. And yeah. I'm New York. And, and then you could just simply translate for everybody and make it easier for them. <laughs> That's a good idea. I'll, I'll, I'll still try to put it to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So thank you for giving me your time. Thank you. And final question that I like to give every guest is what would you like to leave the audience with? Could be. You know, a, a, a word from um, it could be a sentence from a book you've read, could be from one of your projects, could be uh, from one of your favorite songs, could be anything. You're freestyling, so it's just you. So, uh, you know, we talked about Elvis Costello, yeah. And um, on his first album, My Aim is uh, it was My Aim is True, and it comes from the song Allison. And um, I have always held those four words close to me that you know we may fail in fact we often fail in fact maybe arguably we fail more often than we succeed true right and there's there's not wrong with that nothing I agree. Uh, um but what's wrong is if your aim is not true you mm. you know that my aim is true what i achieve what i at- attempt to achieve is true um I may miss my target sometimes, but I'm always, my aim is to achieve something positive and decent. Um, And I think that, you know, it served me well. You know. I love that. I love that. So, as my people say, Mbana, again, for coming on the podcast. And um, if people want to reach out to you, where can they do that or how can they do that? Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, uh, Instagram. Um, actually, Twitter better because I tend to keep my Instagram private. But yeah, yeah Twitter is the best way. To find okay. So I'll put a Twitter link mm-hmm. in the show notes. 
and yes you'll get great stories the great follow and yeah Maurice is like he's an awesome person to just follow except when it comes to Arsenal I still gotta throw the Arsenal bullet yeah. <laughs> well I'm glad you're enjoying it this year I was I was that, that, that's enough fans did a whole lot of trash talking to me back in the Nigerian days I'll never let that go <laughs> <laughs> so to everyone listening thank you all for this uh, for listening um, make sure you come back for the next episode next week and keep the love coming in sharing stay positive thank you all for the privilege of your company uh, thank you for having me thanks for listening to white label American if you enjoyed the show We'll appreciate if you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. If you have any questions, comments, or have someone who will be a good guest on the show, or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at whitelabelamerican. Thank you for your support.